Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Michael at lmfm.ie The Michael Reed Show. Monday morning, the 10th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The European Commission is calling for a coordinated approach in the fight against coronavirus. Full vaccination and boosters provide the strongest protection against COVID that is available now. Commission President Ursula von der Leyen wants the vaccines to be utilised as much as possible. So we are in kind of a tug of war. On the one hand, you have the virus and the variants. And on the other hand, we have vaccination and boosters. And I want the second part. Most people in Europe are vaccinated, but not enough, uh, according to the Commission. 77% of the adults in the European Union vaccinated, or if you take the whole population, it's 66%. That figure of 77% of all adults falls short of what the Commission says is needed. This means one third of the European population is not vaccinated. These are 150 million people. This is a lot. The hope is to change that and to get as many people as possible vaccinated. Not each and everyone can be vaccinated. So there are very small children, for example, or people with special medical conditions. But the vast majority could. And for those who can but won't get vaccinated, the European Commission president wants to force their hand and make it mandatory for people to get vaccinated. I think... Um, it is understandable and appropriate to lead this discussion now um, how we can encourage and potentially think about mandatory vaccination um, within the European Union. This needs discussion. This needs um, a common approach. But it is a discussion that I think has to be led. Ursula von der Leyen and it's a discussion that is currently underway in this country. The Irish Times reports today that uh, Neffet is considering making it mandatory for people to get vaccinated in uh, this country. Jennifer Bray's story tells us about minutes from uh, the National Public Health Emergency Team's meeting on uh, the 16th of uh, December and they say it was noted uh, that the NEFID will discuss the issue of mandatory vaccination at a later date and this discussion will be facilitated by a forthcoming paper from the Department of Health on the relevant ethical and legal considerations pertaining to this topic. Let's discuss this now with uh, Labour Party TD for Louth and East Meath, Jed Nash, who's on the line. A very good morning to you, Jed Nash. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, I suppose under normal circumstances this would be an extraordinary discussion but of course these are not normal times anything but in fact uh, they're not normal normal times at all and it seems that the discussion within government um, and effort is moving on in terms of the, the question at least 
of mandatory um, vaccination. I, I noted with interest, Michael, what Ursula von der Leyen has said um, and how she wants a, a common European approach. It'll be surely up to each individual uh, member state having consulted intensively uh, and after a national discussion has taken place to decide whether or not that's a road that we want to, to go down. Um, it, it's I, I'm, a, I'm a little dubious and, and quite sceptical about um, forcing people to do anything. Um, we have do have very high vaccination rates in this country, among the highest in Europe. That being said, um, the total population unvaccinated, I think, runs about 5% at the moment, and, and, and they account for 50% of ICU cases. So this is a serious issue for the individual health uh, of those who uh, have at this stage uh, decided not to get vaccinated and for their families and for their loved ones mm. uh, as well. And there are big, big social, ethical, moral and legal considerations and constitutional considerations um, we have in this country in this regard. So I would tread very, very cautiously, uh, even though uh, it might be popular in some quarters to say, let's vaccinate everybody. Mm. There are very big ethical questions that would need to be addressed before any government would make that decision. It's an argument that might be easier to win in places like Poland or Lithuania, uh, some of uh, the old Eastern European countries uh, where vaccination rates are, are very low, below 60%, I think, in, in some circumstances, but very difficult to make this argument here where 95% of us have been vaccinated. Yes, well, 95% have decided that you know, they, they've, they've accepted the science. They understand that getting vaccinated is not just for them and their health, but the health of their loved ones, their workmates, their friends, and, and allows them to live what we might consider to be some kind of a relatively normal life in the context of where we're at um, at the moment. Um, obviously, figures across certain parts of Central Eastern Europe, across the world more generally, uh, where the vaccine is available. Remember, because there are parts of the world where the vaccine is still not available, and we should be focusing on that too. Uh, and I'd like to hear more from the European Commission, quite frankly, about how we're going to vaccinate the, the, the rest of, of the world. Uh, we're quite advantaged here in terms of our access to vaccinations as a developed um, country on the fringe of Europe. Um, there, you know, the world will not be safe mm. until everyone is safe. And a, a TRIPS um, waiver, right. it's called, the intellectual and, and properties. Waiver, which, we, which we support. Mm. I, I, exactly, because we are in a battle here um, uh, to, to, to essentially to, 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 to save the world. Mm. Um, but there's, and, many and to skin it, there's many ways to skin a, a cat, and it, it seems that there is uh, this consensus that, that when people aren't vaccinated, it's leading to other problems. For example, more than half of uh, the people who are in ICUs in this country are not vaccinated, and that's out of such a small portion of uh, the population. Uh, and the problem with Omicron, of course, is that so many people are catching it and staying out of work. And anything that can be done to bring down the rate of transmissibility is obviously in the interests of everybody's health, uh, but not just their health, so the whole economy and our general well-being, including our mental health. Oh, look, exactly. I mean, it's not just a, a health consideration. There's, there are wider um, considerations here as well. We've heard over the weekend concerns expressed by employers about um, uh, levels of illness uh, and uh, the way in which our um, isolation and close contact rules work at the moment where, you know, if you are um, a, a close contact, you will, under certain circumstances, obviously you have to isolate yourself for a, a number of days. And it's very, mm-hmm. very difficult, as we know, in our own area in particular, given that we don't have a testing centre in places like, like Drogheda, we t- you know, access to testing is very, very difficult indeed. And now, you know, the focus has moved uh, almost entirely for at least some age groups to antigen testing and, and isolation rather than accessing the gold standard PCR test. And that's that's uh, more to do, I think, with the lack of testing capacity than uh, any any sudden um, conversion to the benefits of, of antigen testing at a central 
government level on, a, on an effort level. Yeah, it seems um, from what but, Thomas but, Byrne, the Minister for European Affairs, was saying over the weekend uh, as well, is uh, there could very well be a coordinated European uh, approach uh, to people who have tested positive uh, but don't have symptoms. Yeah, I, I know. Uh, that I think late last week, the ECDC, the European Body uh, for Disease Control, uh, ha- has made it clear that they are considering, um, you know, different approaches um, for close contacts who are vaccinated. That, that's understandable. We're, we're learning every day about how the virus um, responds to the vaccination. The best protection people have from uh, getting very, very ill uh, is 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 vaccination. So uh, I, I wait with interest at what it is they they finally propose, but it will be up to. Mm. I think each individual member state to decide which way uh, they're, they're going to go. Um, and I would, would tread cautiously as mm. well, Michael, on close contact rules. I mean, this has all been, um, I, I think, considered uh, uh, through the, the lens of what's in the best interests of, um, you know, the economy, uh, what's in the best interests um, they would have it, at least uh, of, of, of employers and so on. There's some kind of language being used that I'm quite uncomfortable with, uh, you know, people who are out of work uh, because they're isolating under close contact rules. They're, they're, they're now declared as being you know, absentees. Um, this has been described as absenteeism. Uh, that suggests that people don't want to be in work. The rules are the rules and they're there to protect people's public health. And we always need to be conscious of the public health um, issue here, first yeah. and foremost. And, and, and I suppose that's the idea of, of trying to get everybody vaccinated. And uh, if people won't buy into that, that you force people to do it, that you make it mandatory. And so there's different approaches that are being uh, taken uh, to do that across Europe in Greece uh, you're fined if you're not vaccinated and fined around 100 euro a month every month uh, if you're over 60 and haven't been vaccinated uh, they're bringing in fines this week in Italy for the over 50s and then you've uh, in places like Austria where we've had lockdowns for the unvaccinated that seems to be what the French are going to do now so that really you won't get in anywhere or be able to do anything uh, if you're not vaccinated, but you won't be forced to get vaccinated, is that a, an approach that you would favour? Well, I, I'm not. I'm not in the business of forcing anybody to do anything, and that might not be what people want to hear. Um, but we have a strong tradition in this liberal democracy of you know, governing by consent, uh, of ensuring that um, you know, we give people the best advice that they can, and they make in this liberal democracy uh, their own minds up in terms of what they feel is best for themselves. Uh, and for uh, their families. And there's a lot of you know, constitutional law uh, around this and, and precedent and so on established by the courts um, around bodily integrity and so on and so forth. Now, m- my own view is you know, get vaccinated and, um, you know, understand it, you know, re- read up on the science, take advice. I noticed that actually you know, following Twitter feeds from various doctors and so on have been sharing their experience. Um, they've been dealing with a lot of patients who have decided that, you know, not getting vaccinated just wasn't worth a stay in ICU um, and wasn't worth damaging um, you know, the health of, of family members and so on. Uh, and it's quite sad that it may have come to that for, for some people. Uh, but I would appeal to people to you know, understand the science, read it, uh, understand what's at stake here um, and make your own decision. Um, I, I'm not comfortable forcing anybody to do anything. There's very few things we do in this society, Michael, where people are forced by law to do something. Um, there are different political traditions in places like Greece, uh, different political cultures in places like uh, Austria, uh, and different levels of vaccination indeed. Uh, And we have to look at it in that context. The levels of vaccination here are high. Yes, it is problematic that we have such a significant number of people who are unvaccinated who are um, 
occupying beds in ICU who are very, very ill. Uh, and I, I would hope that people listening to the program say who are maybe a little bit skeptical with about uh, vaccinations might might consider that uh, and might consider what's ultimately in their best interests. Hmm. I suppose being vaccinated. The whole world changed when we started uh, to say COVID without thinking a, a, about it. A, a new term uh, a couple of years ago, now one that we live with every day uh, and with COVID has come uh, this change in the world and how we think about the world and some of the unthinkable things that are happening in the world uh, today uh, and it looks like uh, mandatory vaccine might be introduced in Germany and we've heard there from uh, the European Commission President suggesting uh, that it should be pan-European across Europe. Uh, There's also uh, uh, some division within NEFID it would seem according to Jennifer Bray's report in uh, the Irish Times today about closing times for pubs and restaurants and as to whether they should be forced to close at 8 o'clock. What are your thoughts on that Jed Nash? Yeah, I read that report um, as well, and I can understand why there'd be division. There's always division uh, about what it is NEFIT might uh, recommend. Remember, NEFIT recommend and government has to decide, and it's often been the case that government have been happy uh, to be uh, to, to hide behind uh, NEFIT when maybe unpopular advice uh, is being is being um, urged uh, upon them. Um, let's look at the evidence. I mean, from what I can recall, Michael, um, NEFIT had advised that. Uh, the restrictions that were introduced just before um, Christmas uh, were to be in place, um, all things been equal, at least until the end of uh, January. So um, let's look at this on a, on a weekly basis. I mean, do we know um, you know, how effective, we'd say, 8 o'clock closing has been? I don't know. We haven't seen the evidence. Is there going to be, would there be a difference between 8 o'clock and 10 o'clock closing? Maybe not. Um, I think their concern may have been, you know, the kind of behaviour that... Um, gathering in pubs might, might prompt uh, and, and promote and encourage uh, around Christmas. I don't know. I'm just uh, putting myself in, in their shoes. Um, it seems that NEFA haven't recommended at least any additional measures from the meeting last Thursday, which I think is, is a good thing. Um, I think they're, they've decided not to recommend any measures because, any additional measures because um, the Omicron variant is so um, transmissible. Um, they're probably asking, well, well, what's the point? Uh, we're at the um, rough end now, I think, of mm. the uh, sorts of measures that uh, they would have um, in extremists um, considered in the context of a, a variant like like Omicron, which is obviously extremely um, transmissible, 21,500 cases yesterday. You know, we had seven to 8,000 cases this week last year, but with a variant that was much more um, problematic in terms of um, severe illness. That's not to say that Omicron does not make you severely ill. It can make you severely ill. It can mean that you are hospitalised. So, um, look, let, let, let's see. Um, uh, we take the advice of the public health experts. We don't second-guess that. Uh, I'd like to see the evidence, of course, about 8 o'clock versus 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock, or whether we go back to normal uh, opening hours mm. in pubs. And not, let's, let's remember, there's a huge focus here always on pubs and so on. What mm. about other venues? What about, you know, how our cinemas operate, how our uh, arts venues, our cultural venues, our theatres and so on operate. Uh, we have to consider that too. And the people who work in them uh, and sustaining Sorry. those jobs, uh, sustaining those jobs safely. And of course, all of this has uh, been costing uh, the country an awful lot of money. Well, it has. And we've spent at this stage, for example, through the initial temporary wage subsidy scheme and then the subsequent employment wage subsidy scheme, close to 10 billion euro in keeping people in work, effectively paying the bulk of their wages to make sure that during this unprecedented economic um, challenge that 
people will remain in work and that businesses will remain viable. Unfortunately, we have some businesses, uh, a small minority, uh, and we don't have a clear handle in terms of quite how many, and I've asked the Minister to finance this, uh, quite a number of businesses, high-profile businesses, who've been abusing and exploiting the scheme. Uh, we have seen, we have said from the get-go, Michael, that there should be conditions and strings attached to uh, this huge transfer of uh, public wealth to private interests over the last um, two years. And we've seen before Christmas, thanks to um, work done by Mark Paul in the Irish Times, revelations that, uh, as we predicted, uh, firms who would be benefiting, you know, to the tune of millions of euros uh, per annum in some cases, transferring, uh, you know, paying out dividends to shareholders mm. uh, who are shareholders in companies uh, that have benefited from the wage subsidy scheme. And remember, this is at a time as well when people are being taxed uh, on, for example, the TWSS early last year. This week last year, uh, there were bills hitting the mats. Uh, of people, ordinary workers around the country uh, whose jobs were supported through the uh, wage subsidy scheme. So uh, we had called for prohibitions on these kinds of um, these these kinds of issues, uh, you know, where they, you know, if they did arise, they, well, they, first they wouldn't, you know, companies wouldn't be allowed to access these kinds of funds if they paid bonuses, if they um, paid out dividends to shareholders, or if they laid off staff. But there are no strings whatsoever attached. And I think this is an expensive lesson that the government's going to have to learn. Right. And uh, you want those companies to return uh, those uh, monies, uh, the funding that they received, uh, if uh, they didn't actually need the money. Yeah, and some have. Um, unfortunately, we're in a situation where um, you know these kind of uh, hollow calls have been made by uh, when I raised this in the doll initially uh, on the Wednesday before uh, we broke for Christmas with Pastor Donoghue and then the following day when I took leaders' questions with the Labour Party I raised this very issue with the tarnished uh, Leo Faradkar who said yeah the companies who clearly don't need the money mm. and who are paying dividends to shareholders should pay the money back but we're in a ridiculous situation where um, you know, <laughs> I hate to say I, I told them so but I told them that this would happen I told them this in March 2020 I told them again when the EWSS uh, was uh, instituted that there would be companies who would engage in this kind of behaviour unless the government chose to make it unlawful and they chose not to make it unlawful. Okay, Fiona Sheen is writing about this in the Irish Independent today and he, he describes uh, these calls for companies to pay the money back as manufactured outrage. Uh, he makes the point that what they did or the way they received uh, this state funding was perfectly legal and he describes this as the latest left-wing pinko trend which is to slag of companies that availed of supports that they were legally entitled to. That's really good copy, isn't it? Um, okay. I've been, you know, it's, it's uh, uh, Sean Hans entitled to write what, what, what he wishes to write yeah. in his newspaper. And, that, and that's a perspective, uh, and that's, that's fair enough. Mm. Uh, but it's hardly manufactured outrage if you have been... Um, Introducing amendments to legislation for two years. Um, if other countries across Europe mm. have introduced, uh, he does make a good point though. He does make a good point though that that, that, that on one hand you're doing that on one hand the the, the, the state is uh, giving money or is asking uh, wealthy people to pay back money, but on the other hand uh, they're giving everybody this one hundred euro off uh, their electricity bills. Uh, I mean, if he's consistent as well, you would say, well, the Labour Party called that out because it is it is the kind of universal payment that is really, really poorly targeted. Uh, there are many, many people that listen to the programme this morning who need much more than €100 Euros, uh, who may be uh, living in difficult circumstances in low pay. Uh, that's why we propose, for example, there will be a €200 Euro 
carbon credit for people who are earning under 50,000 euros in poor energy rated homes. Okay. Um, so it's a really poorly targeted uh, measure and government needs to, to reflect on that and introduce a proper package of supports to address the real cost of living challenge that we have now but you know michael there are countries across europe every single country has introduced some kind of restriction on access to wage mm. subsidy schemes of course we want companies to be viable we want companies to be uh, profitable we want enterprise to thrive and, and jobs to be um, retained and jobs to grow and a, uh, a very situations like this where a, a very different story uh, just uh, before we conclude a very different story to that uh, in dundalk uh, with some dreadful news uh, on friday i think it'd be remiss of us not to mention it this morning uh, but obviously a lot of concern uh, for the people in national pen who are going to lose their jobs uh, absolutely um i was speaking to the media about this uh, over uh, the weekend uh, and dealt with a lot of national pen staff uh, just under two years ago uh, when they were told that they would lose their jobs. Uh, and the National Pen say um, that they are committed to the Dundalk area. Um, but, you know, our experience has shown that when they make those commitments, you know, a year or two later, uh, they shed uh, even more uh, jobs. So people will unfortunately take that commitment from senior management with uh, a, a pinch of salt, um, to, to use the parlance. Um, my initial thoughts are obviously with the um, possibly 100 people who may lose their jobs over the next few months, in National Pen and with their families. I mean, National Pen is a well-established company uh, in, in Dundalk and people from across the region um, work work there. Uh, it's a very difficult time indeed for them. And I hope lessons are learned about the way in which the um, last um, consultation around redundancies um, uh, operated uh, in National Pen and that those lessons are applied um, when the consultation process uh, opens and that you know, worker representatives and the workers themselves people's whose jobs are at stake they need to be engaged with meaningfully and respectfully Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning on the programme uh, that's Labour TD for Louth and East Meath Jed Nash Michael at lmfm.ie Now there's obviously a lot on uh, the minds of uh, the people uh, who are about to lose their jobs in National Pen and Dundalk as we were hearing a moment ago from Jed Nash of uh, the Labour Party. This is of concern to everybody and this is what uh, the Thonish Leo Radker had to say about it. I'm really sorry to hear about the loss of 100 jobs at National Pen and Dundalk. Uh, the government through the IDA did everything we could to save these jobs but unfortunately uh, this wasn't possible. Uh, and the operations are being moved to the Czech Republic. Uh, on a positive note, um, none of the redundancies will happen until 2023, and the company has assured us that workers will be offered um, a good uh, redundancy package. And of course, government is going to step in uh, by helping them with job search, um, information about welfare entitlements, education, training, and entrepreneurship opportunities. Uh, the company has assured us that uh, it is uh, committed to, to Dundalk and its other operations are going to stay uh, in the town and indeed um, may well be expanded uh, in the years to come with um, 50 people being employed in other sections of the business. Uh, so we're going to keep working with them and uh, doing everything we can to make sure that we attract um, more jobs and more investment to Dundalk and all the county led and Meath uh, in the years to come. Okay, that's uh, Leo Rad uh, the Thornishe on those job losses in Dundalk at National Pen and uh, Dundalk's losses, obviously. Czechoslovakia's gain. Now, uh, let's uh, talk a, a little bit about what has uh, everybody. <laughs> 
totally fascinated uh, this morning. Is he or is he not about uh, to be deported from Australia? There's conflicting news, uh, I think, at the moment about Novak Djokovic. It seems as though he won his appeal. Uh, It's quite probable uh, that uh, the health minister, I think it is, is uh, going to uh, take a decision which would result in him being deported. Uh, But it also seems uh, as though there's a chance uh, that uh, the initial court decision has been overruled. Uh, We'll get clarity, no doubt, during the day. But let's uh, check in on what people in Australia are thinking and saying about this. Bill Woods runs a sports programme for Australian radio station 2GB. Okay, now there's been more stuff going through. Court documents show Novak Djokovic uh, received his positive COVID test results shortly after 8pm on December 16th. So he knew he was COVID positive, visiting kids and others over the next two days. The court might have cleared him today, but public opinion will still judge him as selfish. That's from uh, Todd Balam, who is, of course, a sports correspondent. Uh, Quite a few people have sort of said similar things to us on text messages tonight. Others have uh, have been very much in favour of Novak Djokovic uh, for two reasons. One, suggesting that uh, they agree with his stance against vaccination and COVID protocols. Uh, Two, because they are a fan of him as a player and they want to see him play in the Australian Open. And three, there are people who aren't either of those things, but they just think the Australian governments, and I mean state and federal, have somehow screwed up here. But they're not my opinions. I'm just relaying what we're hearing tonight on text messages. So not putting words in anyone else's mouth, just uh, giving you an idea of what's being said tonight. And that's Bill Woods uh, telling us uh, what uh, his listeners to 2GB were saying to him through their phone lines and text messages and uh, so on. Uh, It really is uh, something I think uh, that people will be raising eyebrows over to hear that Djokovic tested positive on the 16th of December and doesn't appear to have done anything in response to it and has continued living, going out and meeting children and accepting awards and so forth. Uh, Apparently, he's been very busy since his diagnosis. Anyway, uh, that uh, story will run and undoubtedly we'll be hearing an awful awful lot about that over the course of uh, the day. Another terrible story uh, today from New York City where at least 19 people have died in a massive fire. It also left dozens of people injured at this building in the Bronx and some of them are critical. The numbers of uh, deceased could increase. Uh, It's been described as as horrific by the chief fire officer in New York City. Jasmine Garst has been reporting on the fire for National Public Radio in America. Well, the fire started this morning at around 11 a.m. in a residential 19-story building in the Bronx. And the fire department has said that so far the injuries they are seeing have been due to smoke inhalation. They say that the smoke conditions in the building were just unprecedented. To give you a sense of how massive this fire was, it took around 200 firefighters to put out the blaze. And at a press conference, New York City Mayor Eric Adams said, this is going to be a painful record for New Yorkers. The impact of this fire is going to really bring a level of just pain and despair in our city. And Sarah Adams, who became the mayor of New York only a week ago or so. Of course, people are going to be asking now, what was the cause of this fire? We do know. Fire Commissioner Daniel Nigro said at a press conference 
that the fire started in a portable electric space heater in the bedroom of one of the apartments in the building. Also, officials are are now checking the building itself to make sure it's structurally sound because, as you mentioned, this this was a massive fire. A hard day for New Yorkers and many questions. The city's offering hotel rooms to people who have been left without a home tonight. And also, it's opened a hotline for people wondering if if their loved ones are okay. From what I'm hearing, a lot of New Yorkers are, are asking, starting to ask questions. Why on this very cold day in New York City was a tenant having to use a space heater? Were the smoke detectors working? These are certainly questions that are going to be looked into in the coming days. I'm sure they will. There's a lot of questions and a a lot of grief with at least 19 people who have died in that fire in New York City. That was Jasmine Garst who was reporting for NPR National Public Radio. Michael at lmfm.ie the Michael Reed Show. We need to build houses. Uh, I'm sure you've heard that before, uh, but it's uh, the very clear message uh, to the state in terms of tackling poverty in this country. Let's hear why. Colette Bennett is uh, the Economic and Social Research Analyst for Social Justice Ireland. Good morning to you, Colette, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Tell us a little bit about your report, Housing and Poverty 2022. It seems as though uh, there's a a lot of people who are in poverty, but there's all the greater a risk of going into poverty, particularly if you're renting accommodation. Absolutely. So thank you very much, Michael. Yes. So what we produced this morning um, was our policy briefing, Housing and Poverty 2022. And what it does is it takes a look at the silk data for 2020. So that's the latest data that's available for poverty. And as you said, there is a high poverty rate of 13.2% overall um, in the country. But when we factor in uh, things like mortgage interest and rent, that rate jumps to 19%. So to give that some numbers, that's almost a million people in poverty once they factored in their mortgage interest. So not their full mortgage payment, just the cost of servicing the debt, the mortgage interest and their rent costs. Um, So more than one in five people in the state. And as you say, renters are the worst affected. So overall, um, the the rate for renters in terms of poverty is 27.6%. So just over one in four and that increases to 44.7% um, for once their, their rent has been paid. But what is particularly surprising, and, and even for me who would look at you know housing data for, for quite some time mm-hmm. now, um, is the rate for households that are living in subsidised accommodation. So not renting from the local authority, but those that are on, in the private rented sector and are on either the housing assistance scheme, so, or sorry, payment or called HAP or the Rental Accommodation Scheme, so RAS, or in receipt of rent supplement. Um, That rate goes from 22.7%, so more than, you know, slightly more than one in five people, um, to 55.9%, so more than one in two. And they are low-income tenants that are in receipt of a state subsidy. This only supports our assertion, as we've had since this was introduced back in 2014, that this is really a payment for landlords. This is a protection of landlords' incomes as opposed to a real service for tenants, real social housing. There's something really wrong if one in five of us are living below the poverty line, uh, given that this is an exceptionally wealthy country, one of uh, the richest countries in the world, isn't it? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a damning indictment of policies, uh, particularly policies around welfare and around um, low income. So where is the money in in this exceptionally rich country? Where is the money? Is it in the pockets of the landlords? Well, certainly when we look at the impact of housing subsidies, it's not benefiting the tenants. So the only reasonable conclusion we can draw is that it is a protection for landlord income. Mm. And uh, the level of poverty or defining poverty is set out uh, in the National Anti-Poverty Strategy. That's right. So because this is a report on housing and poverty, we found it useful to explain a little bit about what poverty actually is. And the way it's calculated is the national level survey that's conducted by the Central Statistics Office every single year. So the latest data relates to 2020. It was published just before Christmas last year. And, and what they do is they take the median, what's called the median equivalised income, um, which is essentially if you line everybody up by their income from lowest to highest and you take the middle income person they're the median um, the equivalised part means that they, it's just a way of calculating so you can compare across households and 60% of that median is the poverty line so if you are below that you are in poverty mm. so to give that a bit of context a one adult household um, would need 14,205 euro a year or 273 euro 17 a week um, to avoid being in poverty in 2020. And if you consider what the, the social welfare rates, the basic social welfare rates were in 2020, it was 203. Mm. So it's 70 euro, um, the poverty rate is 70 euro above the social welfare rate. Mm. And what, you're about 40% below uh, the poverty line? Sorry, you're, you're 60% of the median income is mm. the, the poverty line. Okay, but you're on about 10,000, I, uh, I would say, uh, compared to what uh, 14,000 is that line. No, sorry, I beg your pardon. Mm-hmm. 14,205 is the line. Yeah, okay. You're, you're well below it, uh, close to 50% below uh, what you need to uh, have as a, an income. Uh, and what does that mean for people? And I'm sure that uh, extends into two-person um, households and families and so on. But what does it mean for people who are in poverty? Does it mean that they can't buy an overcoat or they're going without a meal or that the heat isn't on at times when they should have it on? Well, so there's, there's two data sets contained in the poverty and deprivation indicators. One is the poverty, which looks at income, and the other is deprivation. So things exactly like you talk about, not being able to buy an overcoat, not having two strong pairs of shoes, not being able to mm. go for a meal and so on. But obviously that is directly related to the amount of income that you have. And what we look at in in this particular policy briefing is the impact that the housing cost, so that the money that you're paying towards your housing, be it rent or your mortgage interest, so not your full mortgage payment, um, is having on your ability to do other things. And it's driving an additional 300,000 people in the state into poverty. Right. Uh, And that means what? That you mightn't be able to go for a pint or mightn't be able to go to the cinema, things like that, or go on holiday? More than that, I mean, it, it right. means that for, for many, you mightn't even be able to afford the very, very basics. So things like heating your home, things mm-hmm. like appropriate uh, clothing for the weather, that sort of okay. thing. Okay. Uh, and what's the solution, Colette? Um, well, there's a number of solutions that we would outline in this briefing. So in terms of the poverty side of things, we've advocated, as I'm sure you know from, from talking to Sean Healy, our CEO, um, for a universal basic income for decades now. So give people a minimum floor below which they shouldn't fall. 
Um, we've also been advocating for the introduction of a living wage to replace the minimum wage and for um, a benchmarking of social welfare rates against the um, average wage. And that would go a long way to raising people's income, to remove them from poverty um, and to give them a standard of living. Specifically on the housing side, we are advocating very, very strongly that there needs to be an increase in supply of social housing. Again, if you look at what social housing supports are doing, they're driving people on low incomes further into poverty. We need actual sustainable social social housing that is... um, that is affordable for people on low incomes. We also need then to move. So if you if you have between 60 and 90,000 uh, rented accommodation, which is what this would free up if we had appropriate social housing, hmm. that would then move that stock into the private rented sector proper. And that would have either a, a cushioning or a reducing effect on rental uh, costs. Right. Uh, and that means that uh, we'd all benefit really in the long run. Absolutely. Absolutely. OK. Uh, there is a, a problem, of course, and that's how do you build houses quickly enough? Yes. I mean, but unfortunately, we have seen a particular uh, particularly lack of building, um, particularly again on, on social housing by the state. So, you know, it's time to ramp that up. It's time to, to put in place things like, you know, regeneration, things like derelict buildings, things like, you know, a change of use for over shop accommodation. So there are things that are there, there are structures that are there that could be converted to social housing in addition to building. It's about political will and investing in the right spaces. Okay, Colette, thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Good to talk to you. Colette Bennett, Economic and Social Research Analyst for Social Justice Ireland. Michael at lmfm.ie The Michael Reed Show yeah, we spent a, a lot of uh, time speaking last week uh, about uh, reopening schools, uh, but we didn't speak uh, to any of uh, the students. Uh, that's uh, about uh, the change because we've been contacted by students, I'm delighted to say. And good morning to Andrew Victory. Andrew is the ISSU Regional Officer for Louth Mead. That's the Irish Second Level Students' Union. Good morning to you, as I say, Andrew, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. You've stepped out of class to talk to us this morning. Yes, so good stuff. Uh, how are you yes. feeling? How, how are you feeling about being back in school? Because you 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 wanted to talk to us about that. Yes, yeah, so um, it's very nerve wracking. I suppose there's a lot of stress and um, anxiety around it. Um, we kind of felt as a union that we weren't consulted on the matter. Um, we were only really briefed on it, and we feel that it was a kind of a disregard for that level of anxiety around school and uh, students alike. Um, and you've obviously thought about this a, a lot, more than most of us, I'm sure, for that matter, Andrew. And you've a, a lot of thoughts. Had you been consulted on it, what would you have said? What would you have recommended to the department? Um, well, the Irish Second Level Students' Union called for a, rate, a, phrase, a phased return to school starting from today uh, with a priority for exam students, so third years and sixth years, as well as special education needs students. Uh, we also called for the urgent sourcing of HEPA filters and for additional adjustments to leaving certain junior cycle exams. Right. Uh, and do you think it was a mistake to open on Thursday last week? Um, yes, to be honest, I do. Mm-hmm. Um, we know, the union knows that there's been a lot of staff shortages around schools in the country. Um, we feel that if schools were open today with a phased return, that management bodies of schools would be have would have been able to 
you know, assess how many staff they were going to have out and how many mm. students they were going to have out and just be able to plan more for us because it feels at the moment that we're just kind of playing it by ear. And if you were to be part of that planning, as you said, it would be the third and sixth class students who'd be back, uh, the exam uh, students who'd be back. How would it work after that in terms of phasing uh, the return of students? Um, well, we hoped that the all education stakeholders would help us to kind of identify a plan with that. Um, our primary goal was getting third year and sixth year students back. Now, currently every student around the country is back. Um, so we're just trying to do the best we can. Mm. Um, what I will say is that the Irish Second Level Students Union has issued a survey um, to all Second Level Students Union. It's in regard to COVID-19 and the current situation in schools, but it's also with regards to um, exams and state exams. I know there's been a lot of calls for hybrid leaving cert mm. and uh, this question is asked on the survey. The survey will help the union to decide where we stand on the matter and help us to go forward. I know mm. uh, that the department is very eager to work with us on stuff like this and we had just wished that they had consulted us prior to making the decision. Indeed, uh, the ISSU was part of uh, the discussions last year, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but that's uh, my recollection, which uh, led to this agreement to have uh, hybrid exams that you could either uh, sit the exams or or go for calculated grades. Yes, so they were heavily involved last year in the matter. Uh, We're hoping that that's going to happen again. Uh, roughly about a year ago to date, a similar survey was released and that helped the union again to create a stance on this. However, last year, the survey was only open to third and sixth year students. We had, I think, over 25,000 response, uh, responses. Um, this year, we're open for a lot more. It's open to every student in the country. It's available on issu.ie forward slash survey or um, it's on all of our social media platforms at ISSU for you. Very good. Uh, I'm sure uh, there'll be a big response, as is always the case uh, to the ISSU surveys uh, for that matter, Andrew. Uh, What's uh, the situation this week or what's your understanding of it or what are you seeing in your own school? Uh, Because last week we heard there were a a lot of uh, students absent from school and uh, there were some problems with staffing as well. Is it any better this week, do you think? Um, Well, it's still very early on. It's, I believe, only one class has passed in most schools. Um, I know that there is still a lot of worry and that there is um, I feel I had an email there this morning to say that a lot of, there was a couple more students from certain schools that were out um, it's just kind of it depends on the school themselves mm. we're hoping that there isn't going to be much um, staff or student uh, absences because it will perpetuate uh, inequality when it comes to education mm. you know we're already playing on an unequal playing field when it comes to students that have missed you know two weeks or that have been online um, there's just no comparison to in person learning and online learning and it's yeah. very hard mm. for teachers to manage when you know they have a class of 24 and 10 of them are online mm. And to have your teacher uh, <laughs> sub doesn't substitute really, does it? It's not the same thing no, at all. not at all. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's a very different, especially, you know, substitute teachers don't know how the class works, essentially. Sometimes they don't know what's best, mm. what works best. So it's, it takes a while to get used to. Mm. Yeah. Uh, am I right in uh, assuming you're uh, an exam student yourself, Andrew? Yeah, I'm a sixer. Yeah, yeah okay. Uh, and you're anxious, I, I, I gather, uh, from speaking to you? 
Uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of worry. We don't really know how it's going to play out. Mm. Uh, I know mocks are coming up soon, and I'm very worried that you know I might be out for the mocks. I might miss them. Uh, although they've never had a correlation to you know accredited grades last year, uh, they are a massive indicator for what level a student should be sitting an exam at. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of worry that amongst students that they won't get to sit their mock. Mm. And have you a HEPA filter in your classroom or are there filters in the school? Um, yes, so the HEPA filters are currently being put into our school. Uh, I'm unsure of the you know, amount of them. Um, the funding was only issued for them kind of towards the end of December. So there's a lot of um, kind of rush to get them, but also we're cautious that we're getting the correct ones that you know, we're not spending all this money on filters that aren't going to mm. help. And have you been looking into them? Because we've heard uh, teachers complain that they're not experts uh, in public health or air filtration or any of that stuff. And uh, they don't know what to be buying because uh, when you go to look for a HEPA filter, the world is your oyster. There's uh, some uh, relatively cheap ones and some mad expensive ones and an awful lot in between. Um, yeah, so that's down to the individual management of a school. So I wouldn't have much involvement mm. in that. Uh, I'm just saying by ear, I'm heavily involved in student council, so you know I'm always mm. talking to the deputy principals and the principals to ensure that we know what's kind of going on. Mm. Um, it is the hope that we'll have them um, as soon as possible, and that they'll be in all classrooms around the country. That's another, you know, one of the requests mm. that we had uh, going into that meeting last week. Very good, yeah, because uh, I, I know people have been very cold in school, haven't they? Um, yes, yeah. it's quite cold. The windows yeah. have to be open due to ventilation. I know uh, last Friday it was extremely cold mm. um, up here in Drada. And um, yeah, it was freezing. I was wearing yeah. gloves in class. Hard to concentrate when you're doing that. Uh, I mean, on top of everything else. Yeah, there's, you know, there's a lot of factors going on. And, you know, coming into school and sitting in a classroom for 40 minutes or it's a double 80 minutes and, you know, you're trying to do your hardest and there's you know, the weather coming in through the window it's uh, not the best mm, Okay, well there are hard times we're living through Andrew uh, it's not a, a easy time to be a young person uh, and uh, certainly not easy uh, to be an exam student this year uh, it'll uh, be great I'm sure when you get to the end of it all and uh, hopefully uh, uh, when we get uh, into the exams uh, everybody will be satisfied with whatever model is adopted at that stage. Yeah hopefully and I'd just like to mention there uh, students as always are encouraged to voice their concerns and opinions to the Irish Second Level Students Union. Uh, They can do so by emailing loudmead at issu.ie or alternatively by contacting studentvoices at issu.ie as well as that, if there's anyone listening that is not from the Loudmead region, uh, they can find their contacts on the ISSU website at issu.ie. Very good. All right, Andrew. Listen, thank you indeed uh, for thank joining us this morning. Time. and Thank you uh, for sharing your thoughts with us. Much appreciated. Uh, and uh, uh, they are the thoughts, obviously, of uh, the union as well. Andrew Victory is the ISSU Regional Officer for Loud and Mead. That's the Irish Second Level Students' Union. 
Now, thanks uh, to Tom, who's been in touch with us. Uh, Tom was on the phone, actually, I'm delighted to say, because we were a little bit worried about the phones. Uh, Before I go to Tom's comment, maybe I'll read Joe's text. He says, the reason your phone calls have gone down is because people are sick and tired of you rambling on about COVID. Give us a break, Michael, and then you might get your phone numbers up again. Uh, Thanks, Joe. It could be. I mean, I suppose, truthfully, you'd wonder if that's the case, or is it because we've got a new phone number? Uh, it might be both I don't know <laughs> uh, but if uh, you do phone us uh, from time to time and you're, you're not aware of our new phone number let me remind you it is 041 that's 041 now, let's get back to Tom's comment. Sorry, Tom, uh, I was distracted there by Joe's text. Uh, Tom says he, he doesn't think that the plans to make vaccination mandatory will work in this country. Like Jed Nash said, there are too many ways for it to be challenged legally. And do the government really want to bring that kind of hassle on top of themselves? Sheila says she doesn't agree with the idea of mandatory vaccination. Surely people still have the right to free will and should be able to make their own decisions when it comes to their health and safety. Railroading people into being vaccinated is the start of a slippery slope and we need to tread carefully on it. Thanks, uh, Sheila, for that. Uh, If uh, you have any thoughts on that or anything else for that matter, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Michael at lmfm.ie the Michael Reed Show. Now, Fianna Fáil has established a committee on Northern Ireland and uh, the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, and uh, Senator Aaron McGreen has been appointed to, to this committee and joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Senator McGreen, and thank you for your time as always with us on the programme this morning. Tell us about this committee and what its objectives are, if you would, please. I suppose it's a it's a one of the one of the policy groups that has been established within Fianna Fáil in the, in the parliamentary party, and these committees are an important step in policy making, um, and how we as a party um, establish our, our policies within government. And I suppose it's a, just a responsible way for us as a party to come together, to get our thoughts together, to listen to our membership, to listen to um, our councillors, and then bring bring those those policies into into government. Um, this this committee, the Good Friday Agreement on Northern Ireland, is a committee that myself, Senator Nelly Blaney, and uh, Deputy Brendan Smith have been, you know, advocating for uh, as we attend the Good Friday Agreement. And we just thought it was important to bring that into Fianna Fáil, into the into the wider the wider party, as you could say. So, um, yeah, it's it's mm. a, to establish a framework and a policy of how we our attitudes and what what we think. Yeah. Um, do you think those? Uh, I don't think it'll be a short-lived committee. But, but do you think that there's a, a risk that the objectives of the committee could be short-lived, and that the objectives could change to dealing with uh, the collapse of the Good Friday Agreement? Well, I don't, I don't believe we're going to have a collapse of the Good Friday Agreement. You remember that the Good Friday Agreement is an international agreement. Um, it was ratified by, you know, by... Yeah, but you know that the North. British have no respect for international agreements. We, we do know that. And I suppose this is another reason why it's so important that the biggest political party in the country has a policy group um, supporting the Good Friday Agreement and supporting our neighbours, our family, our friends and um, our fellow politicians in the North to ensure that we do have a strong Northern Ireland. Mm. And that's the objective of, of this party... Of this of this policy group, I think it's it's you know it's not just it's not just about you know an echo chamber. Michael, we we plan to you know travel all around the country 
um, and talk to membership, talk to mm. non-members on, on how best to move forward on this island. And, you know, bring and, back and to, you'll you know, be watching things that are out of your control as well, of course. Uh, I'm absolutely. sure you'll be watching... Like everything in politics. There's um, so much stuff out of your control. Yeah, I'm sure you'll be me- watching the meeting between Liz Truss and Mara yes, Safkovic very closely this week. Liz Truss, of course, has replaced David Frost as the Brexit minister and uh, is talking yeah, and about today, triggering Article 16 again. Yeah, absolutely. And today it'd be very interesting for the news this evening, Michael, because Liz Truss is meeting with the UP leader Jeffrey Donaldson and meeting with um, Sinn Féin today. That's so another very important meeting that we must we, we must listen to. And obviously, you know, current affairs are really important to this this committee. But the thing is that this committee is just is is one thing that this party that this party is doing in relation to Northern Ireland. I and mean, you look at you know the Taoiseach's initiative, the Shared Islands, the Shared mm. Islands Unit. That's hugely significant, and it shows our 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 as a party, our you know our commitment to ensuring this entire island is 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 best taken care of. And for the first time in the history of the state, a Taoiseach has set up a unit dedicated to looking at things on on an entire island, mm. one island basis, yeah. and has put money in. It's not just policy putting billions into backing that those policies and as you know our, our narrow water bridge is going mm. to be funded out of that so it's a really important yeah, well, progressive step it's mad by the whole thing collapsed and then we decided to do it ourselves without uh, the money that we would have got otherwise uh, from the British government and uh, from the European Union but let's look at the other side of this if we can Senator McGreen for a moment uh, because Liz Truss has said she'll work night and day to finding a, a solution to the current crisis uh, but she was writing in the Sunday Telegraph and she said let me be clear I will not sign up to anything which sees the people of Northern Ireland unable to benefit from the same decisions on taxation and spending as the rest of the UK or which still sees goods moving within our own country being subjected to checks. Will she get her way? Here, you know, when you, you listen, you listen to all those words, and that's about all they are really is words, because as we know, Northern Ireland has a different setup to 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 England, Scotland, and Wales as as it stands before Brexit. And um, Brexit has brought on, as we all know, Michael, a new set of of you know conditions and barriers and and restraints in which Northern Ireland has um, has to exist within. But they're the, the words of the Bre- they're the bra- words of the Brexit minister. I mean, there was hope yeah. uh, when David Frost went that Liz Truss would have different words uh, but they're the very same words. She went on to I say my priority is to protect peace and stability in Northern Ireland. I want a negotiated solution but if we have to use legitimate provisions including Article 16 I'm willing to do that. It's very, very frightening, Michael. And I, I you know, we, we, we and you know well as well, Michael, we cannot um, forecast what the British government are going to do. Mm. Jeffrey Donaldson is delighted. Absolutely, delighted feeding into the, to, to exactly what what uh, Jeffrey Donaldson wants, mm. and, and, and rising rising fears, rising concerns, building up mistrust within the unionist community. There is an awful lot of politics, um, and, and and looking forward to, to to the May election in Northern Ireland. And it's a real shame that we're still here at the position that you know we're, we're talking about us versus them in the north, and and and, and building up those fears and mistrust. But the problem, the thing is. The European um, Commission um, has done incredible work in trying to 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 
to assuage the fears of Northern Ireland. They have worked, they've got um, one example announced before Christmas was the medicines to make sure that there was no barriers yes. bringing in medicine to the North. It, that is, uh, highlights the I know, the and they've, got, they've, gone, they've gone much further than anybody would Absolutely. have anticipated. They've bent over backwards, it seems, to facilitate these arguments. But after doing all of that, this is what the British is saying. Uh, that's yeah. what uh, Liz Truss wrote in the Sunday Telegraph. Yes, and we just hope that it's all bluster. Um, we, can, we can't, you know, again, Michael, mm. you know that the British government are law unto themselves and, you know, they could change with the weather. Then again, um, you know, they, they, they signed, up, signed up to this protocol. Well, if the British do change their mind, uh, the unionists seem intent on collapsing power sharing. Absolutely, they, they, they seem to be, and we don't know whether we don't know that there is a, a precarious few months ahead of us in, in Northern Ireland, and indeed all of the island, because what happens in the north affects what happens in the, in the, in the south. You know, we need we need a strong entire island, and an island that government works on, um, and unfortunately, government is not working at the minute in the north because of all those. Um, things that we've discussed discussed before because of the threat of of dismantling the power sharing agreement that is that's not an acceptable way to to move on and and, and you won't see me you know any way apologising or or accepting the the fact that Liz Truss and and, and Jeffrey Donaldson are using this rhetoric the point is that the, the European Commission has done incredible work um, in trying to assuage the fears of the unionist community. Also have worked with businesses um, and, and you can see businesses doing really well in the north. Um, you can see business leaders mm. coming out and say, yes, the protocol is working. It's only politics that's not working. Business is working. Um, and it's really, really important that we start listening to people who are impacted directly by the trade between the UK and Northern Ireland um, and that's the business of people and, and people on the ground, shops, you look at there's shortages on in shops in um, in the in the UK. There's not on the island of Ireland, um, and you know the, the protocol is working for Northern Ireland. Yes, and I did agree with 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 with, with some people um, previous in prior that there was needs to be you know a bit more flexibility within the protocol. That flexibility is clearly there, and the European Commission are working on that flexibility. Um, one big fear that I have, Michael, is that the, the British government will will rework the protocol so much that it in, will interfere with the, the, the trade and cooperation agreement. Because as you know, the you know the protocol had to come first before the trade and cooperation agreement, mm. and the, the final agreement had to be had to be fine before it was finalised. Um. And when, at the committee with 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 with, um, with Fetch there a few months ago, I asked him how far can the British government change the protocol um, that would would indeed collapse the trade and um, mm. cooperation agreement? Because that is a fear. And there's, there's well, they're on the brink of it, aren't they? They're on the brink. Absolutely on the brink of it. And let's hope the common sense and decency and yeah. a bit of morality. And we could be looking at a hard border and everything that goes with it. Our worst fears could be realised. Absolutely, Michael. And let's hope that mm. you know we have some positivity, some progressive politics in the north, and looking to the future, and not just looking at, mm. at poli- looking at an election in May. Actually, look at 
to do what, what's best for the people of the entire island all communities north and south and we do need a strong and peaceful north to well, make sure that we have a strong it'll island. It'll be a big week I think uh, with uh, the meeting between Liz Truss and Marisefkic this week. Uh, speaking of trade across the border uh, are, are you concerned about all of the shoppers uh, who may be going up to the north for a cheap drink. I don't know whether you saw Nicola Donnelly's article in the Mirror over the weekend, uh, but she bought two slabs of 24 cans of Morrison cider uh, at €16.25 each. Uh, they would have cost forty-one sixty-six in the south, uh, and this is, of course, because of minimum unit pricing, uh, something the government promised wouldn't happen until it happened in the north, and it's going to cause real problems, isn't it? Well, I think it was the previous government that said it was uh, it wouldn't happen happen um, until it happened in the, mm. in, in the north. And the fact is that we have minimum unit pricing. It is a public health concern that, and we all know that there is a there is a too much alcohol being consumed within within within, within every age group. But is there any public health benefit if you just get the alcohol somewhere else? Well, I think there there has always been displacement of market market shares along the border. You know, but for you, lots does of this does does, does this not create displacement of market share? I mean, uh, that was just one example from a big long list shopping list uh, that Nicola Donnelly had, uh, and when she went to the till, she paid two hundred and sixty nine eighty two euro. Uh, it would have cost her €405.10 here. She saved €135.26. It took her five minutes, I suppose, to go across the border to save that money. Um, well, so when you look at that, you're, the whole idea of this public health measure is to reduce the amount of alcohol that people purchase and people and people um, consume, and you know we've seen evidence in in Scotland, and um, in the first year. Mm, not um, sure about that. Mm. Well, that, that, the, facts, that the facts, Michael. Mm. In the first year after the, the introduction of minimum you know, pricing in, in Scotland, there was a ten percent decrease. Mm. There's been a huge, but there's been a huge so, decrease COVID. in alcohol consumption here. Uh, a lot of it has to do with COVID. There's. A, a, a huge increase because of COVID. No decrease. Um, and then there was an, an increase. Yeah, there was an increase because of COVID. No a decrease. Then, uh, decrease in oh. consumption. Alcohol consumption is way down. Well, that's a, that's a really positive thing, isn't mm, it? Yeah. Um, and but, but you must look at um, the cost of alcohol um, in this island. What cost is the economy? Two point three billion every year. Mm. For 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 health reasons, work absences, accidents, um, mm. and qu- there is there is a huge problem with alcohol. Um, we don't. Yeah, it's the same thing. Maybe so, but but there's going to continue to be as much of a problem. If people want to drink, they'll drink. They'll just go across the border and buy it there instead of here because it's well, far cheaper. The same thing happened. You could do that in Scotland as well, and there was some some market displacement, but not all the market. You live along, Senator McGreen. You live along the border. You must be getting it in the neck from people. I am not. I'm not. Are I'm you not. not really? No. Seriously? No, I'm not. Because it, it's it's it's, it's, it's not just the alcohol trade. But it's, it's not just—it's not just the, if somebody if somebody decides to drive across the border to save a hundred euro or two hundred euro on drink, and they might do their weekly shop while they're up there, or go out and uh, buy their Christmas presents or whatever it is uh, that they're looking for at the time. That's that is that is has always been an issue along the border when people can shop in Newry or Dundalk or wherever the case may be. It is always a problem with with. with 
fluctuations in, in exchange rates and everything. The fact is that minimum unit prices is going to come in in the north, north of Ireland as well. Um, yes, it's not going to be, it's not coming in the next year, it's coming in, tw- uh, in, in 23, but it is coming. Um, and if people, I think, we we try and reevaluate our relationship with alcohol. And I don't think anybody in their right mind can agree with, um, can disagree with the fact that alcohol can cause an awful lot of problems within families. I don't, within, yeah. you know, don't think anybody, I don't think anybody has disagreed with that. But. No, and that is, and that is the core reason. Yeah. But the, price. It yeah. has worked in Scotland. It has been there has been problems with it because of COVID and, and, a, and a, a fluctuation because of COVID. But in the first year after the implementation, ten percent in alcohol-related reduction in deaths. And I do, I think that's a positive thing. If we have ten percent, uh, if we had that this year mm. um, in Ireland, a ten percent. And do you not think not that people? Do you not think if people want drink, they'll just go and buy it where it's cheapest? The, it, the, the border people aren't going to come from, people aren't going to um, suddenly drive all over the north um, from all over the southern side of Ireland mm. to the north yeah but people in Dundalk let's say it, it, some people might not all people I, I, I won't I continue mm. to go and shop where it's convenient mm. to me my family will shop where it's convenient to me mm-hmm. if I'm, I often that's why I said Dundalk it's very convenient to get cheap drink if you're in Dundalk you don't need to buy it in Dundalk and that's the problem that traders in Dundalk will have as I said there has always been market fluctuations because of um, because of our um, closeness to the border and um, there's lots of things that um, people have gone to, gone north to buy over the over the years um, because they were cheaper for many many different reasons this is another example mm. there, there will still be alcohol bought and purchased in Dundalk and it's not going to affect all alcohol you know the fact that you can buy a, a, a slab of Guinness in Dundalk for 20 quid at Christmas time might not be just that all positive thing um, you know because <laughs> it might be if you don't have much money you see <laughs> <laughs> it's alright if you have all the money in the world but it's a chicken and egg it's chicken and egg uh, yeah well I don't know I think a lot of people listening to us uh, would think otherwise uh, uh, and yeah. would tell you that uh, they're responsible drinkers uh, they just don't have loads of money uh, and that uh, if you if you have it's not about having loads of money Michael it's about everybody um, and it's not it's, well let's say you want to buy you look at the let's say you want to buy 24 oh, cans of Guinness uh, and you can afford it because it's 20 euro. You can't afford it because it's 40 euro. What does that mean? The whole idea is you buy less. But if you wanted to have 20 cans in the house so that when people came around uh, and you might have one or two yourself over uh, the couple of weeks of Christmas uh, and if somebody came in, you could offer them a drink and all of that kind of thing. We're not talking about exorbitant amounts of beer, for God's sake. 24 cans. Uh, But to save 20 euro on that by going across the border, of course people are going to do that. Yeah, and, and so, there will, will, will be, as I said, there will be market, some market distortion, but there won't be um, that that huge influx um, of people going to to the north. We'll see. Um, we'll see. I, I, I mean, you may be right. It's not going, it's not going to affect off licenses. It's not going to affect yeah. pubs. Um, it's only going to affect large supermarkets. Um, and if people mm, are yeah. travelling to spend an extortionate amount of alcohol in the north, mm. um, then. You know, you look at Nicola Donnelly's article, she sent a text around to a group of friends on WhatsApp and suddenly she got all these orders and filled up her car and came back with savings for everybody. Well, 
fair play to her. Yeah. Um, and, but it's going to come in in the north as well in the next in in, in the next while. So. Mm. Um, I think they're a bit off. They're a bit way off uh, at this stage, and uh, maybe the increase in trade may influence that uh, as well. But time will tell. We leave it there. And I hope people are safer and drink less alcohol, and that's a positive thing. Thank you indeed for joining us as always. That's Fianna Fáil Senator Erin McGreen. Michael at lmfm.ie. The Michael Reed Show. Now, there'll be loads of vans in Cork with uh, loads of beers, according to Dan and County Louth, coming from the north. Uh, Paddy Duffy says if uh, those price differentials north and south are right, there's a, a massive incentive for smuggling. Thanks uh, for that. And Margaret says, great to be getting 100 off the electricity bill. Will it be that amount or will the government be taking some of it with uh, the 13.5% VAT that they have on the bills? Thanks uh, for that. James in touch. Uh, from Drogheda as well asking about people going across the border for alcohol a lot of people as I say uh, in touch about uh, minimum unit pricing and the impact that it's going to have on cross-border trade Mary says she'd love to see the Minister Norma Foley and her government colleagues sitting in some of the classrooms around the country and witness firsthand the current conditions for teachers and students how can pupils be expected to learn under those conditions it's completely unfair on them and it's unfair to expect teachers to work in that environment and and Pat in touch with us saying she doesn't agree with making vaccination mandatory, but she does wonder if uh, the fact that some people are struggling to get time off work to be vaccinated might be a factor in why some people are not getting the jab or the booster. Maybe that's something the government should take a look at and look at ways of making it easier for people to get the time off that they need. Thanks to everybody who has been in touch. Just to remind you, our new telephone 0419832000. That's 041983. 2000. Now let's talk about nuclear power because uh, the Irish Commissioner Mairead McGuinness is defending a plan which comes under her remit uh, which uh, will classify nuclear power under the so-called taxonomy as green power. Uh, the former uh, Fine Gael MEP uh, is saying that uh, it will drive investment towards achieving the European Union's goals of carbon neutrality by 2050. Of course, Maid McGuinness was replaced uh, by Colin Markey, uh, who is now currently the Fine Gael MEP for this region and on the line. Does the Commissioner have your support, Colin Markey? Yes, I think uh, the, the initiative that the Commissioner is working on, that whole taxonomy initiative, is all about uh, achieving the green goals and it's all about prioritising renewable energies to, to make sure that they happen as quick as they can. I suppose the, the realisation and the practicality of it all is that it will take time for the renewables to come, to, to get enough renewables to have, if you like, to fully decarbonise the, the, the economy. And we have to really look at what we, we do in the next... 10 to 20 years because like there's an urgent requirement to decarbonize to stop global warming and if the renewable energies are not coming quick enough then we have to look at what, what are our, if you like a transition or what we can and do in the meantime so you're a supporter of nuclear power as an environmentally sustainable way of uh, producing energy i think it's it's look I, I, I'd start with it, I'd be in favour of renewable energies, but in the absence of having enough renewable energy there at the moment, I think we have to look at transitions. And I think renewable or a nuclear energy, one thing about it, it has its, it, its falls, but one thing about it is it doesn't emit carbon in terms of when it's working. And I think the key thing there is mm-hmm. that it's to decarbonise the, the environment. That's okay. what we want to do. To so will you vote in favour of it? 
I think we ha- it's, it's a long road to go yet in terms of where it, where it uh, has to go. And I think certainly there's, there's, uh, it needs probably to be considered a little bit more. But I think on the principle of it, we will have to consider uh, nuclear power. We will have to consider gas, both as transition, transition fuels to, to bring us to where we want to achieve by 2050. Is that Finnegan policy? I think it's it's government policy to recognise that that, that uh, well government policy would uh, government policy would includes uh, Fianna Fáil and the Greens is certainly not green policy. I don't think it's Fianna Fáil well, policy. Is it Fine Gael policy? I, I, I think Eamon Ryan came out and recognised the need for uh, renewable energies for nuclear power. For nuclear power, sorry, for nuclear power to be considered as part of the transition mix. Do you see, if you consider over like in the short term. We have to we have to bridge that gap and we have to decarbonise. And if you consider a situation where, let's say, seventy percent of France, France's power is generated from nuclear power, and there's probably I think thirteen countries across Europe that have a nuclear facilities in place, like to to stop using nuclear and to take them out of commission would have a massive impact. Like from an Irish perspective, mm-hmm. I don't think there's any time soon that there's going to be a, a nuclear facility built in Ireland. Like Ireland's ambition is very much in the renewable space. I think we've 80 gigawatts of power uh, off the west coast, which ultimately is probably three or four times the potential of what Ireland would use, even when you use some of it to convert into fuels. So our long-term future is in renewables. But in the medium term, across the whole of Europe, like there's so much... Is that hypocritical, though? I mean, we are receiving power from nuclear plants in this country, aren't we? Yes, and that's, that's why I say we, nuclear is a reality. It, mm. We may not be producing it here in Ireland, but we're talking about making an interconnector to France by 2026. And if 70% of French power is nuclear, then we have to accept that nuclear is part of our mix. But what we want to do... So, so we can expect that nuclear stations will be on the silence? I wouldn't say that. No, not at all. I think we, uh, on this island, we would we would try to develop our off, offshore wind capacity, which, as I say, will deliver three, over three times our, our requirements, even if you convert some of it into fuels. And ultimately, in the longer term, that interconnector will be about exporting power to France, renewable power. But in the meantime, when, until such time as we develop that power, because even the first of, let's say, the offshore wind, it's, it's, you're talking about 2028 before it comes into play and the, the significant part of it is let's say off the west coast which is floating offshore which is a bigger challenge and it will take time to develop that so like in the short term we'll be relying on the interconnector from France to supply us with some of our power so I think we have to face up to the reality that nuclear is part of the future it won't be on this island but we will be getting the benefit of it from Europe in the short term and ultimately this is about a transition over 20, 30, 40 years to, to allow renewables get to a level where they can displace the, the, the likes of nuclear and gas. The other thing about, I suppose, the other one that's included is, is the gas side of it. Mm. Like, gas is, is, if you like, it's probably the least uh, uh, pollutant fossil fuel. The other thing about the, the requirements as part of this taxonomy, any gas facilities that are put in place, they have to make them spec'd that they can take hydrogen when hydrogen comes online from... Mm. Like the, the suggestion is by 2035, they should be converted into hydrogen. So if you like, you're putting in place the infrastructure, be it with the interconnector to France, be it with the a 
ga- gas network mm. that that will will facilitate renewable energy. And should that so logic should that lo- should that logic not transfer to domestic policy here in terms of uh, the uh, work that we're going to do uh, on housing? Uh, and we're at the moment uh, banning gas boilers in housing. Uh, should those boilers not be uh, allowable uh, so that they can transfer to hydrogen? Well, I think the the key demand for hydrogen is going to be like heavy goods vehicles, aviation, maritime. So but it could be I for domestic use as well, could it not? Well, the, that's what the gas industry yes, is is arguing anyway. And even in terms of carbon footprint, the transport of energy, the most effective and efficient way is through electricity. So certainly, I think electric is going to be at the basis mm. of most of our energy sources. Even the, even the the gas in the long term will be created from hydrogen. So that will be electricity. So why would you convert it from electricity to hydrogen to turn it back turn it back again, if you like? The most efficient way of of I don't know. The the, the gas industry electric. is suggesting that uh, they would continue with a, a view to transferring to hydrogen. But I think they they I. It, particularly for the like of heavy goods vehicles, the like of aviation, the like of maritime, there will be an enormous need for for a renewable fuel source, a dense renewable fuel source for the, for those industries, and that's where gas and hydrogen and the like of ammonia as well is going to come into play. But I think from a domestic perspective, when you can have ground source heating, you can have solar panels, there's plenty of things in which domestic heating could be generated, which wouldn't take gas, but there will be ultimately a need for hydrogen for other reasons. Okay. And that ultimately will come from electricity. And in the, short, in the longer term, that's renewable electricity. But in the medium term, we have to be pragmatic about where that's going to come from. OK, we'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more about uh, this in uh, the coming months. Uh, but thank you indeed, Colin Markey, Fine Gael MEP for the Midlands Midwest. Michael at lmfm.ie The Michael Reed Show Visiting somebody in a nursing home has become terribly complicated, to say the least, since COVID. Today, new regulations suggest that regular visitors are advised to consider self-testing for COVID-19 twice weekly, even if you have no symptoms. Occasional visitors should be advised to consider self-testing for COVID-19 before they visit a nursing home, even if they have no symptoms. Uh, There is concern, as you've been hearing uh, this morning, and let's hear a little bit more about that concern. Sarah Lennon is Executive Director with Sage Advocacy, and thank you for joining us as always on the programme this morning. I take it you're not particularly concerned about the advice or the prudence of the advice. It's how it's being interpreted and how it's leading to some confusion and being interpreted differently in different nursing homes. Good morning, and that's exactly it. I think a lot of what's in the guidelines um, is, is good advice and, and many people would be following it um, anyway. Um, and I know a lot of the people who contact us, family members, would say that they would be regularly um, taking antigen tests to protect their family members anyway. Um, and all of that is fine. And I, I suppose it's like everything else with these guidelines throughout the pandemic is, you know, they've been interpreted very differently depending on what part of the country you're in, um, from nursing home to nursing home. And, and it leads to great uncertainty. And I think in some cases, maybe un- un- unnecessary upset. And in some cases, really families being kept apart from each other when they don't have to be. So I suppose we just wanted people to be really clear about what's required of them. Uh, they're not pr- required to produce an antigen test result. The nursing home can't compel you to, to have one, for example, to yeah. take one in their presence or anything like that. And um, It is just guidance and, and advice um, 
for, for people to consider for themselves. And is that what's happening? Are nursing homes looking for results or to take one in their presence? We have had um, some phone calls of, of nursing homes requiring people to take antigen tests and, and providing them. Um, and we've also had some, I suppose, some reports of, of nursing homes not allowing visits to go ahead at all at the present time. Um, and we know that, look, when there's high levels of, of the vaccine, or sorry, of the virus, I should say, um, prevalent in particular communities, there may well be curtailment of visits. But, but that should always be in, in line with really what public health advice is saying. Um, and as a minimum, things like window visits and outdoor visits should go ahead. And again, reports coming into Sage Advocacy that those types of visits are not being facilitated. So really inconsistent at the moment, probably the most inconsistent we've seen it um, across the board. And in some places it's working very well, visits are working very well, mm. in other places they're not functioning really at all. Okay. For how long is this going on where there aren't visits, uh, where there are no visits, uh, window visits, for that matter, let alone face-to-face visits? Uh, is that since Christmas or what's the story with that, Sarah? Yeah, we've definitely seen a change since Christmas. Mm-hmm. And, and indeed, what we saw over Christmas was in some cases where maybe nursing, nursing home residents returned home for a period of time that they were asked to self-isolate when they returned to the nursing home. Again, that wouldn't be in line with what the guidance is suggesting unless there was an exposure, for example. So I think any kind of preemptive self-isolation um, is really kind of, it, it, it's punishing people in some ways for, for, for leaving the nursing homes. Residents have played their part throughout this whole mm. pandemic. They've, they've restricted themselves. They've, they've rushed to get the vaccine when it was available for them. Um, and really, I think we owe to them that they would be reaping the dividend of, of really the sacrifices they've made across the course of the pandemic. Yeah, well intended, no doubt, uh, but causing more harm than good, you'd argue. I think so, yeah. And I think, mm. you know, but the guidelines are very clear that it's, mm. it's for people to consider for themselves. Um, but I think, it's, I suppose, it's another aspect for nursing homes themselves to try to grapple with in, in, in fairness to them in terms of understanding what's required of them through the guidelines. Um, but I suppose it is just a, another complication, I suppose, on the road of, of getting what, we, what we're looking for, which is the name of the guidelines is normalising visiting again. And we really want to be moving back towards where people were before the pandemic. And yeah. we're not there yet. Yeah, well, it's very important that uh, people see their families uh, and friends, uh, for that matter, as much as possible, particularly uh, at uh, this stage in their life, uh, because uh, there can be terrible consequences for that not happening. Uh, But as you say, it's not happening for some. Uh, As I mentioned, undoubtedly, it's well-intentioned. Whether it does more harm than good uh, is another day's work. Uh, But Nursing Homes Ireland is uh, suggesting uh, that a fourth jab might be made uh, available to nursing home residents uh, to stop them from catching COVID. Have you any thoughts on that? I think, look, if it's, if it's recommended, um, and they'll, they'll be obviously NEFID and NIAC will have their, their say on, on whether it's recommended or not, and some countries have used it. Um, as I say, um, when, when offered uh, vaccines up to now, nursing home residents have been the first to get it, and mm. that's right. Um, but they've also enthusiastically signed up for it in, in very high percentages. Yeah. So I think, look, if it's medically recommended and, and it will lead, as I say, to some sort of dividend for people, because mm. I think there'll be some fatigue if people are continuing to get vaccinated mm. and not seeing really any improvement in, in how they're living their lives. Yeah. And we need to make sure that we're, we're promising people that they'll have some sort of normalisation back as a result. Of well, that's what everybody is hoping for, of course. And uh, I think uh, the Israeli model is what's being looked at. And uh, it seems uh, to be giving a greater level of uh, protection to people who are particularly vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if they're stopping uh, relatives from coming in uh, because they haven't taken an antigen test or whatever the case may be, how is it uh, that staff continue to work uh, in nursing homes if they haven't been vaccinated? 
Yeah, and the, tr- the same was true over Christmas when people who work in nursing homes went home and socialised and saw family, as is their right to do so. And mm. um, there isn't restrictions on, on them when they come back. So the, the burden does, does fall to the residents, I suppose, a lot of the time for safety. And they are the ones who would be most badly impacted, of course, by the virus. Um, but we need, to, I suppose, to, to think about what's required of each and every one of us in terms of making sure that our most vulnerable people are protected. And... Um, because, and as I say, as I said repeatedly now, they've played their part and then some yeah. in terms of keeping themselves and others safe. Okay, we leave it there, Sarah. Thank you indeed for joining us this Thank morning, you. as always. Sarah Lennon is the Executive Director of Sage Advocacy. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show. 